This is The Ethicist, a podcast from The New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts, Anthony Appiah, teaching philosophy at New York University. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Amy. How are you? I am fine. And Kenji Yoshino, teaching law at New York University. I'm happy you're here, Kenji. Great to be here as well. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about blood donations and faux medicine, priggish neighbors using ethics as a cudgel, and the notion of fairness. Okay, so here is our first question. I recently engaged in a virtual debate on a friend's Facebook page. My friend was advocating blood donation, and her friend posted this comment. This comment thread seems like a good place to ask an ethical slash moral question about blood donation. I'm ineligible because I've spent more than six consecutive months in the UK between a certain range of years. This rule was put in place largely due to fears about mad cow disease. I often lie and donate anyway because I don't think the rule has much grounding in good risk analyses. I responded that it is unethical. Donating blood is admirable and necessary. However, there are certain infections for which we lack good screening tests, and we must rely on proxy measures of risk, like travel history. People who receive blood products accept the risks of blood transfusion under the conditions that those risks have been minimized as much as possible. This person is lying because she believes the science behind the screening questionnaire is overly cautious and exclusionary. I, too, am ineligible to donate blood because I have a first-degree relative who died from Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. CJD can be hereditary or acquired. All evidence in my grandfather's case points to acquired. My blood poses no risk to others. Still, I follow the rules and do not donate. This person argues that the small risk of one unfortunate outcome shouldn't outweigh the greater good of donation. I argue that her views of reasonable risk are moot. Patients who accept blood transfusions have the right to a safe blood supply as defined by regulatory bodies, not individual volunteer donors. What do you think? Signed, name withheld. I have to say that my main thought is that this is one instance of a general problem that that any doctor will tell you about, which is that the world is now full of people who think they have a a PhD paren Google. They've got a degree by Googling around on the internet, which entitles them to substitute their judgment for the judgment of uh, highly qualified experts who've actually thought about the matter. So I'm profound. And I, I think that one thing this person who's engaging in this practice should think about is whether it's just possible that the policy was made by people who are better qualified than she is. And anyway, even, even if she were right in this particular case, there's, there's a question of whether it's a good idea to follow the higher-level policy of second-guessing authorized decisions in this sort of way, um, made on the basis of certified expertise. And I think that is also a bad idea, as, as is, as you point out, ignoring the fact that the people who accept this blood have done so on the assumption that people like you are donating after telling the truth. Uh, uh, so I think there are many other ways to do something public-spirited than to do something that is, in these, let me point out, four respects, wrong. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to substitute your judgment for somebody else's uh, without uh, entitlement. It's wrong to second-guess authorized decisions. And it's wrong to ignore the fact that the people who are getting the blood are taking it uh, on the assumption that you're not lying about yourself. 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, this, I think, is a fairly easy one, given that the person writing the post, I think, is incorrect. And to all your litany of reasons, I might add a couple of more, uh, Antony. Uh, I mean, one is just to first, in fairness to the person who posted, uh, as a lawyer, as in particular as a constitutional lawyer, I think that there's also this rising skepticism about, it's not just that people have a rising sense of their own expertise, I think that people have a diminished sense of governmental expertise. And we see this actually uh, playing out in the constitutional law context with less deference given towards uh, agencies, or I should say in the, in the Supreme Court context. But in this particular case, the agency in question is, uh, is the FDA, uh, the Food and Drug Administration. And it seems to me that they have been fairly responsible in the ways that they have operated. So this is just kind of uh, the cherry on top of your analysis, uh, Antony, because I think standing alone, your analysis would be enough. But the FDA, which who controls who can and cannot donate, I think it's approached this in a re- responsible manner. It Actually, if you go to their uh, website, so, uh, you know, I have a Google PhD of my own now because I've now visited this website, Uh, but it acknowledges that some of its policies are overbroad. So the posters comment that uh, the policy is overly cautious is something that the FDA itself has acknowledged and put into its own risk calculus. And second, it acknowledges that none of its policies are set in stone. So any of the poster's resistance could be taken to the FDA, which seems to be internalizing uh, objections to its policy. And, you know, the FDA has in the past adjusted its uh, policies based on not random comments from uh, people who post, but rather from the best scientific evidence. So just to give a recent example of that, they the FDA modified their Uh, restrictions on blood donation from men who have sex with men in 2014, where they used to have a categorical exclusion, and now they have a one-year exclusion. Obviously, you know, some individuals might think that that, again, was overly cautious, but it at least shows that the governmental body is listening and is engaged in this dialogue with uh, the most recent science. So I think that gives an additional reason not to go around the agency and second-guess it. And I think bringing it up directly is the ethical, the right, the smart thing to do. Because I would have said the only thing in your list of ways in which this is wrong, Antony, was the sort of going against accepted authority on the subject. Um, Because sometimes that could be wrong. But the thing that concerned me the most was the original poster going that she believes the science behind the screening questionnaire is overly cautious and exclusionary. Not that she's been researching this night and day, not that she's contacted the FDA, which says, yes, it might be a little broad, but you can see why that would be, because we're providing life-saving blood transfusions, and the people who are coming are entitled to believe that all of the screening that could be done has been done and that they are as safe as it is possible to make them. And I'm always struck by this moment for people as they're struggling with um, something ethical or moral, which is um, surely there is a good ethical way that I can do what I wish to do, even though it seems that there might not be. And in this case, it seems to me that you know, lying and donating anyway because I don't believe in the rule or I'm not convinced by the risk analysis just seems to me to be, you know, picking up the mantle 
of ethical behavior and trying to throw it over your shoulders as you go forth to do exactly what you wish to do in a completely unethical manner. Um, And so I feel like as somebody who donates blood and as somebody who has received donated blood, I feel very strongly that um, this is this would actually be a pretty awful thing to do, to lie and donate anyway. Um, and it is, um, however unintentionally, victimizing people who need blood transfusions. Okay. I, I just got to say that the um, what we're talking about here is giving a pint. Right. If there were a massive shortage of supply or something, then the FDA itself would have to weigh up the risks of uh, changing its criteria and making them... Uh, more relaxed in this regard, but right now there isn't a shortage. Of, you know, with the with the rules that we have, uh, generally speaking, there's about enough blood. So you're actually. It's not clear that adding your pint and increasing the risk is is actually uh, uh, doing a good thing, uh, a good and necessary thing. It would be very different if there were a great shortage of blood. And in those circumstances, the FDA itself would have to decide uh, which of its criteria to relax. Although I think all of us think that making blood donations is in general a good thing to do. I think it's also true that it's not maybe at this particular moment in time an entirely necessary thing to do. And it comes back to a certain sense of the person who made the original post wanting to do it and feeling good about doing it and wanting not to be deprived of that opportunity to feel good by something as tedious as the FDA rules. And I think our strong feeling is it's wrong, it's dangerous, and my own feeling as well is it is really thoughtless to put other people at risk so that you can have the satisfaction of wearing your little I gave blood sticker. On to the next letter. Dear ethicists, On Easter Sunday, we always have an egg hunt for our neighbors and children of our Hispanic housekeeper and yard man. There are usually about 20 children of various ages. There are cousins who also come. This past Easter, our next-door neighbor suggested that after the hunt and the meal, the kids could all come next door to swim in their pool, which was generous and appreciated by the children. We did not go over because the adults were still enjoying their visiting. The day after July 4th, a full three months later, we received an email from our neighbor stating, quote, Would you mind reminding your housekeeper that they have a large portion of my swimming towels? I was terribly short this weekend. Hope you had a great 4th of July. This was the first we heard of missing towels. We elected not to say anything to our housekeeper, reasoning that three months after the fact, she would not know where the towels of her four children and the eight other cousins had ended up. Nor did we want our housekeeper to think that we or our neighbor thought the children had taken towels that did not belong to them. So, we made the decision to purchase 12 towels and give them to our neighbor. We wrapped them up and left them with a note, quote, a little surprise for your generosity. A week later, we found the box of towels with a note back at our door. The neighbor wrote, quote, I cannot accept these towels and cannot keep them because it is morally as wrong for me to take your towels as it was for your housekeeper's children to keep my towels. We do not think the children were morally wrong in intent. They were kids that were wet and towels were provided. And being kids, they simply did what kids do when getting out of the pool, dry off and then wrap up in a towel before they piled into cars to go home. 
Had we known the towels were given, we would have collected them as they loaded into the various cars. But three months after the fact changes how we think the towels should be regarded. The cost of the towels is not really an issue for us or our neighbors. Ethically, should we have tried to retrieve the towels from about five different families before buying her new ones? We are almost certain that our housekeeper was not even aware the children were given towels, as she was at our house the entire swim time, cleaning up from the meal. Our effort to replace the towels was meant to diffuse the situation, not continue into a towel saga. Sincerely, name withheld. So I think that the caption on this letter, which is the towel saga, uh, is in itself telling, because anything titled a saga immediately suggests that it might be time to wind things down uh, with regard to uh, your relations with uh, your neighbor. So unless there's other information that uh, you're not telling us, uh, I just don't think that um, there's anything more to be done here. You've um, behaved in a perfectly generous and wonderful way, and your neighbor has reacted in what might at best be called a kind of supercilious uh, manner. Uh, I'm really reminded in reading this about how much of ethics uh, is about, you know, not, is about letting the little things go, you know. And here it seems like your neighbor is completely unwilling to let the little things go. And by the little things go, I mean both um, asking for towels that were lent out three months ago and also not accepting your uh, generous offer. So it reminds me of this great article that was just published in the Columbia Law Review called Uncivil Obedience. And uncivil (laughs) obedience is kind of the opposite of civil disobedience, right? So it's uh, complying with the law, but doing so in such a kind of punctilious, over-punctilious way that it creates inconvenience for everybody. So this is a person who actually observes the 55-mile speed limit assiduously on the highway, right, and then gums up traffic for everybody else. So you're complying with uh, certain norms of uh, morality or of law-abidingness, but you're actually making things worse for everybody through your uncivil obedience. And here, I think what the neighbor is engaged in is a form of that uncivil obedience by uh, taking this very kind of uh, moralistic attitude of, oh, I can't accept your towels because you weren't the person who wronged me. It's really up to the housekeeper to return the towels. Um, we need a little bit more grease in the joints uh, and a little bit more play in the joints for uh, to be truly um, ethical, to uh, ensure each other's human flourishing, uh, to just have a kind of generosity of mind and spirit that would be a truly ethical posture. Yeah, I, I think this is so far from a moral or ethical stance, and it should probably serve as a reminder to all of us not to go overboard, as you would say, on on making sure that you cling desperately to the high ground, mostly so you can have the pleasure of kicking your feet in your neighbor's face. And this is just (laughs) appalling to me, especially the tone of, I cannot accept these towels. Really? You cannot? Your own moral goodness makes it impossible and you have to withdraw your hands into your fancy sleeves? It just seems to me that the wish here is not actually to be moral. The wish is to be insulting. And um, it may be that there are some issues of race and class here as well. It would be surprising. Um, I'm sorry to say I'm now imputing all sorts of terrible things to the punctilious and supercilious and frankly rude neighbor. And that seems to include, um, 
you know, the opening. Would you mind reminding your housekeeper that they have a large portion of my swimming towels? I hear all of this, I have to say, in a particularly sort of Dame Maggie Smith tone at her worst. <laughs> you know, I was terribly short this weekend. Really? You did not have enough towels in your house, and so you had to send this kind of note? It seems to me you did a lovely thing. You tried to respond graciously. Um, and it's sort of the best kind of graciousness um, in which there was no insult in your offer to be gracious. And your neighbor was a jerk. And that would seem to me to be the end of the saga. I would, I would, I would, I guess I disagree slightly with, with not, not with what you said about the neighbor. The neighbor sounds like a prig. And if, if uh, he or she were my neighbor, that would be it. Uh, I would not be um, socializing with them very much anymore, and I wouldn't in, be inviting them to the egg party next year. But um, I do think it, it, it probably is a good idea, I think, to take this up with your housekeeper. After all, without talking to her, you have absolutely no idea whether the claim that the children were involved is even true. Um, and she might point. want to she might want to do something about it. Yes. Um, the, 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 the assumption that she'll just be embarrassed, which I, which might be true, somehow doesn't treat her fully as a, as a responsible person. She might think, well, I, I should tell the, my my uh, my nephews and nieces that that's you know when you go to somebody's house and they lend you towels, you return them. Or, or she might want to do something about it. And I think the only thing that I uh, I completely agree that the, the, the response of the neighbor is is sort of preposterous. But but I do think there's a there's a space for involving the housekeeper and understanding what happened. And in saying to her and giving her the, the the right and the freedom to um, to see if she wants to if she wants to do something about it, or or can do something about it. I mean, the, one of the can. things that the letter writer says is, well, the housekeeper wasn't even with the kids at the pool, and right. so the assumption is. The kids were in their suits. They grabbed the, They were given the towels, grabbed the towels, and went home. It also occurs to me in this particular kind of neighborhood, for all we know, the towels are moldering in the basement or whatever room <laughs> the kids changed into their clothes. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, probably if you're going to ask the housekeeper, hey, did you notice a pile of extra towels when the kids came home from the pool three months ago? I can appreciate that being a somewhat uncomfortable or slightly awkward question, but it would also probably behoove the letter writer to go check all the rooms in the house and make sure that there's no little pile of towels left behind. Can I just say, too, that with the regard to the housekeeper, that to me just uh, is uh, paints the neighbor even more in the black because if you have an objection to how the housekeepers behave, don't go to the housekeeper's employer. Or at most, if you don't know who the housekeeper is, you know, or how to contact them, ask the employer to the letter writer in this case for the email address of the housekeeper and address the housekeeper directly. It seems really kind of obnoxious to uh, put the letter writer in the middle and then fault the letter writer for um, engaging in this gesture. Do feel free to send them a link to this discussion. Yes. And on to our last question. Dear ethicists. Before his death, my father gave me the family house and distributed cash to my older siblings. After my father's death, he left me alone a large sum of money. I distributed all the cash I received evenly among my siblings. I did not want to sell the house. I recently got married, and my older siblings are now demanding that I, quote, be fair and sell the house or pay them, which I probably cannot afford to do. Before he died, my father told me to not let my siblings take the house from me. Am I wrong for wanting to hold on to the house to start my own family? Sincerely, name withheld. One of the things that 
all of us get encouraged to do, especially as we get older, is to be realistic and rational and attentive in creating an inheritance. And it seems to me your father worked very hard to do exactly what he intended to do and bearing in mind, apparently, what he already understood about your siblings, which is that they would, in fact, pressure you to sell the house. This question seems to me to have nothing to do with fairness. The word fair shouldn't even be uttered by the siblings because they're not asking you to be fair. What they're asking you to do is, I imagine, redress wrongs that they felt were done to them by their father, um, who is not in a position to respond there in the afterlife, and I suspect responded when he was alive and responded in ways that they found entirely unsatisfactory. And so there you are, the youngest of the group, it seems like possibly the favored child or certainly the more loved child or certainly the child whom the father really appreciated as a future homeowner. Father was very clear. Everybody got cash. You took the extra step of distributing all the cash you received evenly among your siblings, which is nothing except generous. And I think there is always that concern when generosity is badly returned, um, that it makes you want to be a little less generous. And there you are still thinking, is it wrong to want to hold on to the house? It's not wrong to want to hold on to the house. Why wouldn't you want to hold on to the house? You love the house and your father gave it to you. That's actually the end of that piece. My own feeling about which I had, I have to say, mixed feelings was on one hand, you could certainly say to your siblings, listen, there are some beautiful things in the house, and I'm sure each one of you would want a memento of the house. I'd be happy to offer you that. But my, my stronger feeling about that is that they don't want a memento of the house. They don't particularly want a memento of their father. They want the cash, and they resent your having it. So my more protective feeling towards you as the letter writer is, don't offer them a memento um, and enjoy the house. Yeah, this is a classic case of generosity endangering the giver, I think, uh, because on the facts that we have here, you know, you have a total entitlement, you as a letter writer, to both the money and the house. So you didn't need to share the money in the first place, but were generous and did so. And now the reward that you get is that your siblings want to apply the same principle of division to the house. But let's remember that when your father gave you the house, he also gave pots of money to your siblings. And so I, I just I agree with Amy wholeheartedly that it's not even clear that um, the principle of fair division has been violated by the father because he gave you Blackacre and then he gave you your siblings those uh, pots of money. I have to say that when I was reading this, I was reminded most of uh, Rousseau's reflections of a solitary walker. Uh, when you know, remember this, when he he finds himself taking a really circuitous route uh, in his kind of uh, evening constitutional, and he can't figure out why. And then he realizes that when he walks the most um, normal route, he passes a beggar, and he's once given money to the beggar. And now he avoids a beggar because he feels like whenever he passes a beggar, there's now a reliance interest or an expectation in <laughs> continued donation. So I think your siblings in the situation are much less sympathetic than Rousseau's beggar and that you should resist <laughs> the impulse to continue giving, if only because this may chill you from giving the first time in the future. What do you think, I think Anthony? Well, 
I, I think that uh, I agree. I mean, uh, basically, I do think that you've got to accept that um, it sounds as though your siblings think that something unfair was done. I should. It's probably a good idea. I don't know how good an idea it is to point this out to them, but insofar <laughs> as anything bad was done, it was not done by you. Uh, you've behaved impeccably. So even if you go through a rational argument with them about the, about what has happened and about the fact that their father was entitled to do this and, and insist on all the points that um, Kenji and Amy have rightly made, I suspect that you're bound to have a rough period in your relationship after you say no. And... Um, all I can say is uh, you should do in that circumstance what uh, they should do, which is uh, blame your father because, because <laughs> he won't nice, mind. That's a nice <laughs> way out of it. I guess the underlying piece of this for me is that they don't just want to blame their father um, because part of what they want to blame their father for is his feelings for the letter writer. And so no. there's a wish not only to blame him, but that's unsatisfying because he's dead, but to blame the sort of living icon of the father's affection. And there's going to be no talking them out of it, I suspect, which is why I sort of withdrew my, you know, initial nice lady suggestion about offer them a memento. And I thought they don't want a memento. They want a large piece of cash. And anything else will then be construed, much like the terrible neighbor with the towel saga, as an insult. Yeah, so I, th- I think you've got to accept that, that there will be a difficulty here, and the only reassurance you can have through the course of this difficulty in your relationship is that you are undoubtedly in the right. I think we all agree you are in the right, and let them take it up in the afterlife. Right. No, Goneril, no, Regan, you do not get the house. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for The Ethicist. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Kerry Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appiah and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicists.